Al Jazeera podcast. Hanan Ali is a mother of four young children. She says that, like many other Sudanese, she's having trouble feeding them right now. Sometimes I give them cow milk, sometimes powdered milk. Their health started deteriorating, and they had to be hospitalized three times. Hanan is one of many who fled from the capital, Khartoum. She's found relative safety in Port Sudan, a city in Sudan's east. It's become the de facto capital for the Sudanese armed forces, one half of the conflict that is tearing the country apart. Renewed violence appears to have triggered a sharp increase. That's mainly women and children carrying with them stories of large-scale violence against civilians. Last month, the other half of the conflict, the Rapid Support Forces, which have now taken over much of western Sudan, suggested their forces would also set up a government in the areas under their control. So will Sudan be formally divided? And what will that mean for a population already pushed to the brink of disaster? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Sudan's civil war has displaced millions in the last seven months. Some have been internally displaced, like Hanan. And others, like my guest today, have had to flee the country. My name is Khulud Khair, and I'm a researcher and political analyst running a think tank that was previously based in Khartoum, but is now remote after the war. Hmm. And you are based in London, is that right? I am now, yes. So I grew up in London. And so when the war started, I was in Khartoum and I evacuated. So the fighting broke out in mid-April. How long were you there until you decided to leave? Two and a half weeks or so. My issue was that I lived next door to the airport, which very, very quickly became the epicenter of the fighting. It had two rockets that hit next door. Oh, wow. Um, and, and sort of missed us by a hair. Um, so we recognized that our place was not quite safe to be at. But we very quickly realized there were no safe places in Khartoum anymore. Mm. Um, because even the second place uh, we went to, which was a friend's family home, very quickly became the site of warfare between the two belligerent sides. Those two sides are the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. The two groups worked together to launch a military coup against a democratically elected government in 2021, but turned on one another earlier this year. Now Khartoum, Sudan's capital, is split in half. So Khulud, that couldn't have been an easy decision. Talk to me about what the thinking was when you finally decided, no place is safe, I have to leave. Well, I mean, so many of us saw this war coming. Both sides had been bringing in troops, but particularly the paramilitary forces. The language had been very bellicose from both parties, and the atmosphere was such that anything could trigger the fighting after sort of many months of buildup. 
So I had uh, sort of knowing this, I had booked a flight to leave on the 16th <laughs> and the fighting broke out on the 15th, just the day before. So my calculations were not exactly accurate, but fortunately we had a car with us. And so we sort of packed up minimal amounts of possessions and headed west to go south, to go east, to go north. And we came across Sudan armed forces, personnel, uh, of course, armed and paramilitary forces also armed. Unfortunately, we were two women, so they didn't really think of us as very suspicious. And we spun them a story about needing to go see our mother and staying over with our aunt when the fighting started and not being able to see her for several days. Hmm. So they let us through, but quite clearly they were very trigger happy, if you will. They were, of course, armed, but holding on to their weapons. And actually at one of the checkpoints, a truck that had come past had uh, refused the order to stop. And they had started firing on that truck just about a few meters away from us. So that was the buildup in the early days of this war. And then fast forward to present day, so much has happened in those last six or so months. In the last month, there have been some major developments. The UN has warned of uh, soaring rights violations in uh, Sudan's western Darfur, where fighting between the army and paramilitaries is escalating. So the Sudanese armed forces, led by General Abdel Fattah Burhan, have lost control of significant parts of the country. And their rival, the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, led by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, otherwise known as Hemeti, have captured most of Darfur state, much of western Sudan. What does this mean? I think what we're seeing, and we've been seeing this for some time now, but we're seeing a sort of bifurcated state in the style of Libya, what many people are referring to as the Libya scenario, which is that if not two separate governments within one country, then at least two separate or different spheres of influence within one country. Six months of war have plunged Sudan into one of the worst humanitarian nightmares in recent history. A rapid support forces took over a Sudanese military base in Adamata. As soon as they took over the military base, they killed civilians. The power struggle over terms for a gradual transition from military to civilian rule has wrecked the capital Khartoum and sparked ethnically driven attacks in Darfur. Both the Sudan head of the Sudan forces, General Burhan, and the head of the paramilitary forces, General Hemeti, have been sort of threatening to set up different governments in their spheres of influence, with one being in Port Sudan and one being in Khartoum. And here's the head of the Rapid Support Forces, General Hemeti, on September 14th, saying exactly that. We will not allow anyone to speak in the name of Sudan. We will not allow any legitimacy. In the event that this situation continues or the government is formed, we will immediately initiate extensive negotiations to form a real authority in the field of our vast sovereignty. And the extension will be its capital, the national capital Khartoum. So you mentioned Port Sudan, and that is where... General Burhan's Sudanese armed forces have set up their headquarters. It's on the country's eastern coast. He's also called for a caretaker government. So when you think of that, and you think of the example of Libya, as you mentioned, what would this mean in a Sudanese context? What would 
a partitioned government, a government in the East and a government in the West, mean for the people of Sudan? I mean, I think, first of all, the extent to which the Sudan Armed Forces can set up a government in Port Sudan is doubtful. Port Sudan is a small town with a big port. It is by no means a city that can house or host a capital. It has infrastructural issues. Then the government that would be formed would not have that much money. So it wouldn't be able to, for example, very quickly put in place the kind of infrastructure that would be needed for Port Sudan to become something of a credible capital. Mm. So I don't think that this is a scenario that they can really follow through on. Now, in a government by the RSF in most likely Khartoum, to me seems even less likely because looking at the places that the RSF has taken over completely, like Engineer in West Darfur or Niala, the capital of South Darfur, we're seeing that the RSF can sort of take over territory, they can claim territory, but they can't very well administer it. What we've seen in Niala is the RSF has sort of come in and, and taken over. They've driven out the Sudan armed forces and they've said to people, you know, sort of govern yourselves, <laughs> which I think after all the violence as well, you know, the needs are then much higher and people are sort of scrambling to figure out, well, what comes next? So it's unlikely that we're going to see anything that we might recognize as a government coming out of RSF areas, certainly now. Wow. Khurud, you've painted a very bleak picture there because if the military in the East cannot form a government because of the lack of infrastructure in Port Sudan and the RSF in the West can't form a government because of lack of experience and infrastructure and know-how and people and money, what then does that leave? Well, it leaves uh, a state of sort of semi-permanent state collapse, which is absolutely, I think, the worst thing for Sudan. But one of the things that we've all experienced is that Sudan can somewhat function pretty well without a state Hmm. and without state services, which is such a a, a grim sort of statement to make. I think the reason that Sudanese people have been able to put up with the lack of a state for so long is that arguably we've never had one. When the post-colonial state was sort of set up in 1956, it covered Khartoum and then maybe some major cities or towns. But if you live in the countryside, I don't think you've ever experienced what the state means. You've never had access to services. You've never had sort of health provisions and infrastructure where you interact with the state. The only time people in many people in their Sudan's quote-unquote peripheries have ever encountered the state has been sort of at the business end of a gun, usually wielded by a soldier of the Sudan Armed Forces. And I think today we're also seeing that, but of course this time around, you also get the paramilitary forces meeting out a lot of violence uh, to a lot of people in the peripheries as well. So, you know, this I think is a very familiar picture in terms of Sudan, the Sudanese state and its relation to its people. After the break, we'll talk about the state of peace talks between the two factions. On the Inside Story podcast, we ask if... By targeting the Al-Shifa complex in an operation running for hours, has Israel committed a war crime? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
So Khulud, last week in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. led peace talks between the two sides of Sudan's conflict. The negotiations in the Saudi Red Sea port of Jeddah aim to bring a pause, if not a complete end, to fighting that broke out in April. But there was very little progress. What did you make of what happened and what you saw? The Jeddah process. I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this. Give me a second. (laughs) The Jeddah process is not designed to succeed. Mm. And I'm not sure that the people who designed it are aware of that. There are no consequences for breaking ceasefires as we saw in the summer where ceasefires were negotiated by the Saudis and the Americans and none of them held, certainly not more than a day. In July, a Sudanese army delegation returned home from talks, which it said would only resume after obstacles are overcome. The United States and Saudi Arabia, who sponsored the negotiations, suspended them soon afterwards. And there were no consequences for breaking those ceasefires. And as long as that's the modality of Jeddah, it cannot hope to succeed in sort of convincing the two belligerents that they need to put their weapons down. Both Burhan and Himeti think they can win this outright, even if they have suffered setbacks, particularly like Burhan has done. On the other side, you know, Himeti and his RSF, they have been making all these gains in Darfur and they feel that they can keep the momentum up, particularly because they have been receiving a lot of arms from external actors during the summer and are now putting those arms to good use. Russia's paramilitary proxy group, Wagner, have been resupplying the rapid support force paramilitary group. 14 different strikes on RSF weapons and equipment believed to be provided by Wagner. That is what has contributed to them, being able to take so much land, so much territory, particularly in Darfur, and to be able to do so very quickly. So both are sort of buoyed and encouraged by different elements within their camps uh, that make them believe that they don't need to stop the fighting. So your assumptions going into a negotiation can't be that simply asking them to stop fighting uh, is going to do the trick. There have to be incentive structures that are put in around the talks and that inform how the talks take shape that could give it a snowball's chance in hell of potentially succeeding. Hulud, finally, you know, I hate to end an episode on a depressing note, but things are not looking good in Sudan and for Sudan. It's almost impossible not to. The UN relief chief has said almost 25 million people in Sudan are in need of humanitarian assistance. We have the violence against civilians that's been going on since mid-April, outbreaks of cholera, dengue, malaria, measles. More than 70% of health facilities in conflict areas are out of service. Things are bleak. And then on top of that, This week marked what's being called the largest massacre of the war so far. Hundreds of people have been killed in El Janina during the past week. The RSF has taken over the main army base in West Darfur's state capital, El Ganena. Three of those escaping to Chad said they had witnessed killings by Arab militias and RSF personnel targeting the Masalit in Ardamata. More than 1,300 people killed in a village in Darfur. 
That's according to local monitors who talk to Al Jazeera. What is to say about all that's happening? I mean, I think you sort of have characterized it well, is that not only has this week been very bloody, but clearly we're seeing an, an escalation of the violence since this war started. You know, steadily, we've sort of seen an increase in, of course, the level of violence, but also in the types of acts that are committed. You know, we saw during the summer, for example, there's sort of genocide-like and ethnic cleansing-seeming events that are still being looked at. But I think what we saw just in the last week is absolutely uh, an escalation on, on that front. And that means that actually things are likely to get worse. And as I said earlier, you know, this war could last another 20 years. And if that's the case, then we need to sort of look at how we protect civilians, how we push for the protection of civilians, how we push for humanitarian um, support. We're also sort of looking at the potential, the very likely potential for famine-like conditions in the next six months. And so it's a bad, desperate situation that is likely to get worse. Is there any hope in the near term? Where do I find hope in such a sort of desperate situation? Where do many of us draw hope from? And I think it's that a lot of the people who are still in the country they have taken matters into their own hands. And I think partly it's because they've always had to, going back to what I was saying earlier, but they're just not never being a sort of a sufficient, capable state in Sudan. They live in makeshift shelters. Uh, they lack water and food. The healthcare system here is not strong enough to help them all. What we've seen now since the war is the creation of the emergency response rooms, or ERRs. And the ERRs have been set up within different neighborhoods that help people to access healthcare, that help people to find ways to get food, even if it's sort of communally made in mosques or in schools or elsewhere, to find shelter, to find safe passage out of the neighborhood when there is, when there are periods of intense sort of clashes within those neighborhoods. And it's really a mutual aid infrastructure that has been put in place by volunteers and that has found ways to mitigate the impact of the war. I think that's one thing that really gives us hope. But of course, these people, the ERRs, the other structures cannot survive simply on goodwill and good wishes. They do need to be funded. They do need to be supported, particularly by the eight actors who have withdrawn from Sudan. They need to find ways to support them as much as possible. Because as I was saying earlier, I don't think we've seen the last of it. Khudud, thank you so much for um, walking me through this issue. So important. Really appreciate it. Thank you for highlighting it. I really hope that uh, more and more people sort of engage with what's happening in Sudan because it's, in many ways, it's fallen off the, the headlines and, and therefore global attention. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by David Enders and Chloe K. Lee with Amy Walters, Khalid Sultan, Sonia Bagat, Sari Al-Khalili, Randall Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Bernisa Kampana, Zaina Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.